you know, orgasm discharges that energy. And, and that's okay. That's wonderful and beautiful. But over time, over the period of two, three, four weeks, if you're cultivating that energy, you're, you're actually sort of supercharging your nervous system. Hey, lovebirds. Today's episode is with Zoe Kors, a sex and intimacy coach. And we talk about sexless marriages and what to do about them. When do you know it's time to finally let go? Or when you can keep working on rekindling that fire if it was there to begin with? We talk about this idea that there are no failed marriages, even when they end. We touch on opening up your marriage as an option when one partner doesn't want sex anymore. Safety and its role in arousal. And paradoxically, its role in killing arousal as well. And what asking for what you want in your sex life looks like and what does it sound like? and a lot more. I loved this conversation with Zoe Kors, and I think you will too. My name is Sean Galanos, and this is The Love Drive. Um, I'm, I'm ready. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> Will would you please introduce yourself? Yes. Um, my name is Zoe Kors. I'm a sex and intimacy coach. I'm based in Los Angeles, although um, I work with people all over the world to improve their sex lives. Oh my god! <laughs> what a beautiful mm, mission. Yeah, you know, people always say. You know, my sort of mission, my work chose me, and I feel that way to a large extent. How did it choose you? Well, uh, I was very, I would say when I was, you know, coming of age, I was very free and sort of embodied in my sexuality. I gave myself a lot of permission to express myself in that way, and then Ironically, I had a 10-year sexless marriage in my 20s that resulted in the birth of, of my daughter. Not completely sexless. Not completely sexless, but yeah, we it very intentionally wanted to have a child and there it was not an easy thing. And at one point, my husband said to me, look, if, if you want to get pregnant, you actually have to have sex with me. Wow. Yeah. So what's so fascinating to me and, and still to this day sort of feels a little bit mind boggling is that I sort of lived for 10 years, really not desiring my husband. And I love him. We're still we're like brother and sister. And of course, we've raised this amazing woman together. She, she's going to be 23 soon. So it wasn't that I didn't love him or that I didn't find him attractive, you know, physically or that I didn't like who he was. And it just left me completely 
puzzled. And, and then at that point, I kind of set forth on a mission to s- deconstruct what was going on with me. I am so curious what made you stay despite there not being any sort of sexual attraction. Yeah, I'm curious too. <laughs> you know, I think we were good partners. We had a band together. I we, we lived in New York. We met in New York where I grew up. He grew up in Philadelphia. But then, you know, we, we were together in New York and we moved out to Los Angeles together. I sang backups and played keyboards, you know, back there in New York. And then when we came out here, I actually started to write with him and sing and I ended up fronting a new a new project. It wasn't the old band, it was sort of completely new. And we had that mission together and we were best friends, you know, and I think that I felt like I mean there's a part of me that must have felt that sex isn't that important or I just didn't know at that time how to find a way into myself to look at that. I, I felt like there was no one to talk to. I, I spoke to my gynecologist and she, I asked for blood tests and felt that there must be some sort of hormonal imbalance. And, uh, she assured me that I was a healthy woman and, and ran the blood tests I wanted, but you know, there was nothing wrong with me. I had a therapist at, at least part of the time, like during that time. And, I could talk about the relational dynamic, but but he wasn't really qualified to talk about sex. He didn't really, you know, he couldn't sort of help me grok that. And and then, you know, in the years after we split up, I I sort of set forth on this like, you know, exploration of what it what sexuality is, what women's sexuality is, why somebody who why a young woman who was physically healthy and fit and you know emotionally intelligent and aware and had such a good sense of herself how it is that that she was so shut down sexually and didn't and blamed herself and didn't really know where to turn or how to address that issue and you know i i'm my work now tells me that I, I was right. There's like, there, I was not alone. There are many women in that position. Yeah, this story f- sounds like it could be familiar to a lot of people. I don't, have a, I don't have that experience, nor have I heard it from a lot of people. I just can imagine that there are a lot of people in sexless relationships. And I'm curious... And I have to imagine that there are some of those relationships where you, it's possible for sex to come back and some of them where it's not. That's exactly right. There, it's possible for sex to come back in some cases. It depends on the individuals and it depends. I find that it's much easier. I, I, work, with, I work with individuals and I work with couples and in both contexts. And I find that Pretty consistently, if a couple has had a real, like, if there's something to go back to, if if they had an initial great chemistry or connection and there was a spark there and sex was good, it's easier to get back to that, to, to sort of peel away the trauma of, you know, living years together and, and dealing with life and growing apart. It's easier to find your way back to each other than it is to create 
chemistry that was never there. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, if it was never there to begin with, what are you going back to? You have to start from scratch. Yes. And and that's, you know, I mean, there are cases where um, situations where one or the other partner will, there's never really been a great sex life, but it's also because one or, one or both partners have suffered some sort of trauma and don't know themselves, like don't, don't actually know how to access that part of themselves or give, give themselves permission to feel, you know, pleasure and arousal and desire. And, and in those cases, the work is much more individual than relational. And that actually can be achieved easier than if the, if the problem really is sourced in the relational dynamic. (sighs) I'm, (laughs) I, I can just imagine someone who's in a relationship right now where there isn't a lot of sexual chemistry and they sort of hold on to that, right? That maybe one of us has some sort of block or trauma that can be unlocked for us to finally have the kind of sexual sex life that I've always wanted to. And that might not be the case. Yeah, it, it might not be the case. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I've definitely had a fair number of clients for whom I am sort of called in to hold space for that realization and, you know, the, the sort of dissolution of, of the partnership in the aftermath of, of realizing, you know, I'm never really going to get there. I like just having that conversation anyways with people that I work with when they go, well, you know, we could, it could work we're doing the work, we're, we're getting there. And, and I always like to say, well, it, it could also not work. Just for them to be clear that that is also a possibility because I feel like people kind of put blinders on and they just, they refuse to see that that could happen to their relationship. It's so interesting that you say that because I, I too will often, I, I will often sort of throw out all the scenarios, the full breadth of options, you know? And, and I'm curious, like what what do you think is achieved by doing that? And why do you think that people are resistant to entertaining that idea? I just want people to be able to let go to the one outcome that is the the one that they prefer. And for them to just see that, you know what, there's, there's actually, there's option A, there's option B, there's also the, you know, C, D, E, there are other options there. So I think it just kind of opens up the possibility of what could possibly happen. Right. And again, I used the word permission a few minutes ago, but like giving permission to, to entertain, you know, we we're sort of conditioned to believe that you get into partnership and then, you know, if the partnership partnership lasts forever, that's good. And if the partnership dissolves after a certain amount of time, that's not good. You know, and we talk about failed marriages and, you know, I mean, I don't consider my marriage failed at all just because it ended and transformed into a completely different partnership. That's not a failure to me. Gosh, I think a failure might have been to stay in that relationship and never have sex for the rest of your life. Right. And, you know, I I say to many women who are not interested in sleeping with their partners or husbands in particular, when they're married and committed and have kids and they're, you know, they're really, there's a long game in consideration. 
you don't want to have sex. You don't want to work on having sex and you don't want your husband to go elsewhere. So what does that, where, what are you, you know, your inability to really look at yourself and work on yourself is now a requirement of your husband to go without sex the rest of his life. Mm. It seems like a pretty limiting way of approaching the situation. And it doesn't feel fair and it doesn't feel, I mean, you know, it's now, uh, you know, let's be clear. I'm not blaming women for sexless marriages, but, but, you know, I think both partners need to be realistic in, you know, we can only meet each other to the extent that we can meet ourselves. Right. So, and I, I just re- saw recently a little Instagram video that you had done about, about the work, like all the work sort of boils down to first the intimacy with yourself and getting super honest with yourself. So yeah, I don't know where I, I went on a tear there. I'm not sure where I started. I was reading uh, good sex by Jessica Graham and who makes the link between mindfulness and sexuality. And one thing that stuck with me recently was that, uh, I think she put it like water meets its own level. Right. And so when you talk about doing the work and the fact that you can only get to where you, where you are, and you can only really expect that from your partner based on where you are as well. Right. I mean, the, your partner as an individual can sort of be where they are. I mean, I think there, there are partnerships all the time where one partner has a much deeper, richer relationship with themselves than the other. And But, but yes, I think what you're saying is a partner who's more self-reflective cannot expect their partner to meet them there if their partner is not sort of inquisitive and self-reflective and emotionally intelligent and they're going to sort of bottom out where they are willing to look at themselves. And and the flip side, right? Someone who's not self-reflective can't expect the other partner to be more self-reflective than they are or more emotionally aware or available or or have cultivated that kind of connection with themselves if they themselves don't have it. Sure, but you see that all the time in in sort of where, where one partner will do all the heavy lifting, you know? And uh, all the sort of, you know, emotional labor in the relationship. And, and I mean, that's a very common scenario, right? Usually the woman doing most of the work. Usually, yes. Right. I'm wondering if we can switch gears because I have this note here that I wrote about, you know, you mentioned sexual chemistry. And I would love, I don't have a working definition of sexual chemistry. And I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering if we can, we might be able to come up with one mm-hmm. ourselves. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm, I like to play this game. I'm not sure that I have a, a, you know, a pat definition either, but what do you think, what do you think sexual chemistry is when you think to some of the people that you've had that spark with? There's a physical attraction, right? There's a, there's a desire to want to see them naked, <laughs> Right? If I'm not, attra- you're, you're such a dude. What? Okay, go on. What? I mean, we're this. We're working. I thought we were workshopping this. Yes, we are. We are. I'm sorry. I yeah. And let me put on my yes and hat. That's right. Yes. That's right. We're doing yes. improv. Yes and so, 
just right off the bat, there has to be some sort of attraction. There has to be an element of holding back a little bit. So I don't want to call it a game because I don't think it's a game, but there has to be some sort of like dance that happens between the partners where it's not just full open cards on the table. So a little bit of mystery. There has to be some mystery. Uh, there's the unknown hormonal pheromonal component. Right. Okay. Like the literal ke- chemistry. Literal. Yeah. Literal chemistry that I do not understand. There might be that whole, the genetic attraction, right? R- attracted to people that are genetically different than ourselves so that we can create more robust offspring. There is probably a little dusting of maybe fear or something that it, that comes and challenges the attachment style, like an element of it not being a good fit. Uh, you, you mean it, in order for there to be chemistry, there has to be a little bit of like uh, forbiddenness or danger or like this isn't a, this is likely not a good fit. It's not necessary for that to be present, but it often is present. It may be like a degree of unavailability, a degree of uh, how is this going to be extra risk? Let's call it risk. There has to be a little bit of risk. And also risk, to me now, that sounds like a vulnerability, right? When when you're vulnerable, you're opening yourself up to being hurt. That can be exciting because a little bit of risk is sort of exciting. All right, that's what I have so far. Can you have sexual chemistry with someone who is a good partner yeah potentially for sure definitely for sure for sure okay yeah 100 percent. okay i yeah i accept all of those conditions i i agree with all of those conditions i think the way i personally think about like whether i have chemistry with someone it's often like i will often feel like like there's an aspect of their they feel like home and and I don't mean that in like a storytelling, I want to set up a, a lifetime partnership with this person, but they feel, uh, the other term that I use quite frequently is like vibrational match. Mm. There's an energy there that I, that allows me to relax into the vibe and the connection and my own, like a freedom, there's a freedom of that I, to express myself, that my self-expression, sexual self-expression will be received. Mm. And so it it matters little whether it's like the dude at the bar or, you know, a, a friend that suddenly we look at each other and there's that moment of like, hey, you know, like, um, or whatever, like the circumstances don't matter at all. But when there's a, there, there can often sort of, like a moment can present itself where all of a sudden I feel open and relaxed in a connection. Mm. Safe. Yeah. There's an element of safety there. There's an element of safety. I read Naomi Wolf's book, Vagina. And she talks about this idea, this idea that a, a safety is required for women's arousal to be present. What do you think about that? Well, when I was thinking about sort of, I had a, a really lovely morning to myself, um, sort of preparing to have this conversation with you. 
And I was thinking, knowing that we were going to to likely talk about women's sexuality, and and I thought to myself, what, especially in the, in the light of, you know, the recent Harvey Weinstein verdict coming down and that whole, you know, um, saga over the last few years. One of the things that I articulated for myself this morning is exactly that, that that women's sexuality, there needs to be a certain level of safety and that we really suck at our understanding of how to make that happen. And even around, like, we don't know how to have conversations about consent. We make consent out to be this incredibly complicated and confusing topic. And it's really just such a no-brainer, in my opinion. Oh, can you shed some light on that? Like, can you make it a no-brainer for for me as well? Sure. This is a great conversation because I invite you to push back and like, let's dig into it a little bit. Okay, so you have absolutely no right to to touch anybody's body without their consent, without receiving permission to do so. I agree. Period. Yeah, not even a hug. No, not even a hug. And we make bids, like I make, uh, so I just finished doing a, a, an event, a live event where a lot of hugs were given and I would say, would you like a hug? And one of the, one of my prompts was, you know, thank your partner because there was exercises, give them a hug or a high five. But what I could have said was give them a hug or a high five if they want one. So I'm with you. Okay. Got it. And you know, the thing is, is that you've, I'm imagining you at the front of the room in a workshop and I, I do a tremendous number of workshops that you as a facilitator have already created an atmosphere of safety. Right. So, so there's a, there is a sort of, I mean, by the end of a workshop, you know, people are comfortable and bonded and open and they've been vulnerable. And so there's a lot of sort of underlying permission and, you can start to to tell. And when you're in a relationship with someone, you learn their language, you learn their body language, you have, a, you develop a little bit of a shorthand yeah. for consent. But it's, it, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Why do you think that's so unclear to people? Which part? That you're not allowed to touch anybody without their permission? Yeah. Uh, you, we're probably conditioned to receive touch from the age of you know, a day old, right? So we're always, I mean, I don't know, I'm not a therapist, but it just, it feels like people touch children all the time, right? And for for a part of your life, you don't have a choice. Like you, people have to care for you because you cannot care for yourself. So there's this element of like, okay, well, people are going to touch me. And then at some point it never transitions to, or rarely transitions to uh, permission-based touch, it just continues. Give your uncle a hug. All this, you know, all this, these messages that that your body is not really yours. It's for other people's pleasure, and then that I think that's just the script that that, that goes on forever and ever, and until you find yourself thirty or forty years old, wondering why you can't say no, why wondering why you can't ask for what you want, and you don't know how to get out of this mess. My guess, I don't know, non psych. Psycho- psychological assessment. Sure, I think I think that's that's also the case. I mean, I I think that we you can look back through the history of 
you know, masculine and feminine roles and, and how those sort of, you know, tropes are, are sort of communicated and passed down through generations. And then, you know, and show up in media and all of that. Um, I, I do think, you know, and, and this isn't the venue to, <laughs> to get on a soapbox about the patriarchy, but I do think that um, there's just a lot of layers and layers of conditioning. But it does feel to me like the level of entitlement to someone else's body, it, it just, it does baffle me a little bit and why people rail against that. And, and listen, I think women, I mean, a lot of what I do in terms of educating sex education and, um, and sort of empowering women and emboldening them to have agency and sovereignty over themselves has to do a lot with our our sort of inability to write, to say no, you know, or, or even to say yes, a clear, yes, a clear, no, or a clear, like, I know I said yes, 10 minutes ago, but I'm actually revoking consent right now. You know, I don't feel like Like, it anymore. Yeah. Right. I've changed my mind. One of the issues Yeah, there's a lack of sovereignty. There's a lack of probably knowing that you're going to be safe saying no. There is a lack of knowing that you can say no. And then there's also a lack of language. How do I say no? And there's a fear of how, oh gosh, there's so many different fears. There's a fear of how that no will be interpreted and how that no will make the other person feel. And if you're a woman, there's a good chance that you have some people-pleasing Hell, if you're a human, I have some people-pleasing tendencies, not as much as some women that I know that are just really don't know how to say no and don't know that it's okay to say no. Well, and I I can guarantee every woman listening to this and every woman that I talk about has found themselves at one time or another in a situation where they wanted to say no and they felt like their, their physical safety would be threatened. Right. And so you know, then there's the like sort of grin and bear it and get, you know, the path of least resistance to get this guy out the door. Yeah. Surviving this next, you know, moment. Yeah. (sighs) Right. Gosh, it feels like sort of an insurmountable problem. Um, I actually think that the Me Too movement is the beginning of a huge shift and a huge um, bump in consciousness around all of this. And I, I feel hopeful. Thank God. Yeah, I do. I mean, we're having a conversation that we never had before. And and there's a process that, you know, to, to sort of, I mean, that's the first thing. You can't really let go of something that you don't even know that you're holding. So the awareness around this issue is huge. I'll, pick, I'll piggyback off of your hope then. I'll ride your hope wave. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I guess I, I kind of struggle because most of my audience is women and men aren't really listening. I mean, okay, guys that are listening to this podcast, I hear you. I know that you're listening. There aren't a lot of you listening. I mean, I have gotten messages from men saying, yo, I'm listening, you know, because I sometimes say dudes aren't listening. And anyways, so a few of you are listening. And if you're listening, thank you so much. You're part of why there's hope. 
there has there we we need more men to kind of step up and to to pay attention and to and to start doing it differently and to start doing it differently i get a lot of questions about how do i ask for consent how do i ask permission and i don't want to stop the action and i don't want to keep asking and i don't i mean you know i i get that and you know when you have a new lover and you're getting to know each other and, until you sort of develop a level of safety and a, a sort of default language of consent with each other. Um, it's better to ask. It's just better to ask. And you can, you know, you can play games like, you know, do you like this or do you like this? Or, do, you know, does this feel good to you? I mean, you can ask that. Whisper that in a sexy voice in, in a woman's ear, you know? Talking about sex will make you better at sex, number one. Yes. Number two, I, I never ask, can I do this? Because that's me saying like, I'm going to do this to you. And you're sort of just like a recipient to this action. What I say is I would love to, I'd really love to go down on you. That's, I'm not, and I'm not even asking whether I can. I'm just saying, this is what I'd like. The other person hears it as a request. But the language is very, it's very different. And it's, it's, this is where it gets kind of complicated because, uh, you know, if you really look at the language, I'd love to go down on you, isn't a request. It's not a clear request, but, but for the most part, the recipient will take it as a request. It's a little bit bolder. It's a little bit more playful and it feels a little bit less like asking for permission. And then the person could be like, yeah, I'd love for you to go down on me. Boom, consent. Well, the other thing that I hear in, in the way you phrase that that's really beautiful is that you're not, it's not about what you can do to her. Right. And, and that's like, there's, there's so much, it's so common for men in this culture to, um, to sort of boost their own self-esteem by how good they can make their partner feel. And and that's a, you know, there's like, there's a subtle difference there between like, I love to be of service to someone. I love to be the source of pleasure for someone, for my lover, or like, look how good I make you feel. I want to make you come because of what that makes me feel. Right. I'm a good lover. I'm a stud. I can, yeah. She came all over the place. Yeah. When really that act, okay, you can derive pleasure yourself from giving somebody an orgasm and it's not ego-based. It's like, oh, I, I love seeing my partner experience this pleasure. The other person can also experience the pleasure by being the direct recipient of that pleasure or that action that causes an orgasm. That's fine. But if it's, but if it's like, oh... I'm making her come to make myself feel good or better about my performance or my status as a man, that's problematic. And it's no longer focused on, it's like, it's just selfish. Yeah. You know, Esther Perel says that, uh, uh, her data says that a woman is most, okay, she says it the other way. A man is most turned on when his partner is aroused. Hmm. A woman is most turned on when she is the object of desire. Mm. Right? 
And if you think about that, when you when a woman is the object of desire, it's a it's a it's not it's about her. It's about that feeling of being of being sort of worshipped. Mm. It's not it has very little to do with what the guy is doing. Wow, that makes sense. There's like a, a, a sort of a mindset or a feeling sense of, you know, of sort of being desired, you know? It's desiring the woman and less the performance. And it's also placing the importance on her pleasure, not her pleasure because of what it brings to me and my ego. I'm playing with this concept of presence over performance. Oh, yes. I love that. You know, women want your presence, not your performance. They don't really, it doesn't really matter how long you can last or how hard your dick is, as long as you're present to the ever-changing and fluctuating energies that are present in, in lovemaking. Beautifully said. Yeah. If my mic wasn't on a stand, I would drop it. <laughs> yes. Also very expensive. Very expensive. Um, yeah. <laughs> and also when this is another thing that I'm thinking about that's that's connected to presence. When you're trying to make your partner come, you're no longer in the present moment, you're in a future state. Mm, that's correct. So you've lost you've lost the present moment. And it's like I would much rather create an environment where orgasm is welcome rather than trying to make my partner come. Yeah. It, that's it's, that is exactly it. I mean, I think that the, you know, the thing with women's sexuality that, that people, men and women miss is that the real juice, the real beauty is in the journey, not the destination mm. of orgasm. And we really, we, we, orgasms are great. And I think orgasms are important for our health, our, you know, our physical health, our spiritual health, our emotional health. It's, it's wonderful to be able to orgasm. And there's so much more to sex and lovemaking than just an orgasm. So, you know, when you, and by taking orgasm off the table, and making it, you know, removing the focus from orgasm, you're actually increasing the chances that a woman is going to orgasm in a powerful way. Just because we take it off the table doesn't mean you can't have one. Right. But it's not like that's not the goal of sex. The goal is pleasure. The goal is, I mean, if you've ever seen a woman in an extended state of arousal for like, you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes, an hour of just like in that, you know, sort of formless state of it's like a meditation. I mean, it's, it's powerful stuff. And so much happens and is worth, um, and is worth happening in, in that sort of state. How do, okay, two things. First of all, I get a lot of questions from women that are just that they're orgasm focused. They're concerned about how long it's going to take for them to come. They're, they're concerned about the fact that they might not come. They're as concerned about orgasm as men are. So I, I hear from those women often. 
Okay. So what, what do I have to say to them? Yeah. First of all, yeah. What do you have to say to them? And then I have got a, a backup question. Okay. Well, the first thing that I want to clarify is that it's my feeling that their concerns, the way you're asking the question, the, the, the context is that they're concerned that they need to orgasm to make their, to save their partner's feelings. Right. You know, I, I think that that just sort of part of the work is is cultural. Part of the work is people like you and me talking all the time about the fact that, you know, a woman's orgasm is not the only reason to have sex. It's not the mark of a successful lovemaking session. And, and then I think that women have to speak more, learn their bodies, understand what they need, and and be able to really have the courage to talk more about that and and say things like you know I, I may or may not have an orgasm tonight and that doesn't mean I'm not enjoying it you know I know plenty of women who fake orgasms because they don't they don't want to hurt their you know their partner's feelings um, or they want it to be like enough already you know right instead of just saying hey I'm not I'm not into this anymore or like it's complete for me I feel totally satisfied, even though I didn't have an organism. That's right. I, you know, so that's, I mean, that's what I have to say is to really master your instrument. Really, I mean, one of the main healing modalities that I work with, with men and women, but particularly women, both really, but is to, is to completely shift the way you're self-pleasuring to really, really create a completely different experience of masturbation and self-pleasuring. And I, I find it's it's a great modality even for like emotional work, for trauma healing, for all kinds of things. What do you, what do you suggest if we were to like just get a little primer on how to change the way we masturbate? I'm assuming there's no pornography and we're slowing down. Exactly. There's no pornography and, and pornography can be, I, uh, I mean, as you might imagine, I'm not a fan of pornography, but there is a, a lot of, and more and more sort of conscious pornography of, available now. And, and I'm all for that. And I think fantasy has a place in the world of sexuality for sure, but not as a dependency. So exactly that, like getting what I usually do is have a period of time where, you know, usually two weeks to a month of building and building and building more and more sensation in the body. So the, you know, a good jar of coconut oil and sort of the addition of a sort of a ritual or a sacred space to explore your body and really honor this miracle that we walk around in for our lives. And I, you know, there's a lot of body shame that, that women deal with and both around their vulva, vagina, and, you know, other parts of the body. And, but to really be with ourselves and really, you know, like honor the, the sort of miracle and beauty of our bodies and explore sensation all alone with nobody else interfering. And I usually sort of request that this process be done without any sexual contact with anyone else for the, the period of time. 
um, no interference so that all the sensation that you're feeling is really yours. I love that. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. Cultivating awareness around what makes you feel good, what sensations are pleasurable, and then eventually developing the language required to communicate that to somebody else. Right. Or to say that I like it. I like it this way, or I'd prefer it if it was a little bit slower, a little bit softer, a little bit firmer, or, you know, more of a circular motion, or, hey, how about I just show you what really works for me and getting comfortable and developing the courage required to have those, those conversations with your lover. That's right. Mm. Um, And I think there are plenty of men out there who would receive that conversation really beautifully would welcome that conversation you know yeah it has to it has to be the 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 framing that i enjoy sharing with people is that it's something along the lines of i really love our sex life and i love having sex with you and here are some ways in which we can maybe even make our sex life more connected or more fulfilling so you make a deposit in the bank. You make a deposit in the bank before you make a small withdrawal. <laughs> or no, before you make more more deposits. Yeah. But yeah, you, you, it has to start with, you know, this is what I love about our sex life and here's a way for us to make it even more connected rather than I need you to slow down. If I hear I need you to slow down, well, first of all, I'm already failed. I've already failed you. I don't know if I can meet that need. My ego's harmed and now I'm feeling defensive. Right. And all this time that I thought you were enjoying it, you actually weren't. That's right. Anyways, no one's ever said I need you to slow down to me. Um, but that's that's not because <laughs> I, I didn't need to slow down, but it's just because they didn't have the courage or the language required to say, to have that conversation. Right. The other thing that self-pleasuring does is that there's no orgasm involved for that amount of time that I'm sort of prescribing until the end. So yeah, there's a lot of, you know what edging is? I do. You want to talk about edging? So there's a, you know, one of the things, and, and this is, you know, I could talk about this from many different perspectives. From the tantric perspective, what what we're doing when we're self-pleasuring, when we're raising Shakti or Kundalini, like life force energy, right? So we are basically increasing our body's bandwidth to hold a charge. So the more you, and, and you know, orgasm discharges that energy. And, and that's okay. That's wonderful. And that's beautiful. But over time, over the period of two, three, four weeks, if you're cultivating that energy, you're, you're actually sort of supercharging your nervous system. And there are physiological benefits to that. There's definitely psychological benefits to that, emotional benefits to that. There's a, there's a real healing that happens when that, when that energy is allowed to just circulate in the body. Oh, wow. You're building your capacity for energy and, and, pleasurable sexual energy to just live in the body. Right. Exactly. Arousal. I had a, um, people have already heard this before, but I had a, a junior college creative writing teacher when I was like 17 or something say, 
the longer you keep your clothes on, the higher you raise the ceiling. And then he never explained what he meant. But I, what I heard was, you know, you can draw the energy out. You can draw the experience out. You can lengthen and deepen if you're willing to hold off a little bit. And when you talk about edging, edging is basically like getting to the point right up against the point of no return right before you cre- you like, uh, what is it? You kind of tip into an orgasmic state and then you back off and you do that over and over and over and over again and you build the excitement that way. Right, right. And, you know, that's how you end up. I mean, that's pretty much the technique for like full body orgasms or, you know, an extended, an extended state of sort of orgasmic sensation. I mean, it can get pretty crazy. And, you know, it reminds me of where we started this conversation where, you know, part of that sexual chemistry, one of the sort of conditions that can indicate sexual chemistry is there, there's a, a feeling of restraint. You know, there's like, you're, you're lit up and yet you're, you're sort of dancing with that and holding that charge. That just reminds me that, you know, my partner, my current partner and I waited a year before we had sex. Ah, was that challenging to do? Uh, Yeah. I mean, there was travels in between, so she wasn't always around or I wasn't always around, but she was also not available for that first year. And so for that first year, all we did was make out. And we had dates every month or, you know, every couple of weeks. And that's all we did for a whole year. And in that, in that time period, we ended up building a lot of trust and intimacy. So it was like fully, it was fully there when it was, when, when it was like time for us to have sex. Delicious. Yeah. We waited a year to, we kept our clothes on for a year. Mm, that ceiling must have been all the way to the sky. Well, and the ceiling, you know, for me right now as a 37 year old, like this is by far the best sex I've ever had in my, in my, Mm. in my entire life. And I've had quite a few partners. It's, it's just exponential. And, you know, I'm not saying that wait a year and you will have the best sex of your life. Most people will not wait a year. They won't even wait a month, but you know, there, there's a common, like we have incredible sexual chemistry and, and this actually reminds me of the thing that we started with. You know, you, you had tests, right? You had tests run to see if there was something wrong with you. And I was hanging out with my buddy and I had like no libido and I was just like kind of blah about life. And the guy goes, dude, your testosterone must be in the toilet. You got to go get tested. And I went and I got tested and my, my T levels were like totally right in the middle, like super average for, for my age. So there was nothing wrong with me, but man, is my libido now like through the roof. So for me, it's really about the person. Sure. And I I think it's worth also just saying that all of us, men and women and, you know, non-binary folk and, you know, all uh, human beings go through waves of being, you know, supercharged sexually and then more quiet sexually, you know, I mean, I, I think, and, and there are many, many, many things that contribute to that. Um, some of it is hormonal and, and various, you know, places that we find ourselves in, in the arc of human development that affect our sex drive. Some of it is contextual and, you know, periods of great stress or focus on something other than, 
than sex. I mean, I, you know, things sort of ebb and flow naturally. And I'm not, yeah, I'm also not saying that it's only the person because I've had periods of super high libido when I was single and just having casual sex and the casual sex was exciting enough to continue to like drive me to have more of it. And there's also this idea that like the more sex you have, the more you have, like it's around, you're sexually charged, you feel there's like feelings of validation and you know, you feel like a successful person. And so then that is magnetic and more people want some of that. You have that that swagger. Get that swagger, yeah. <laughs> I get a and a pep. There's a pep in your step. Yeah. <laughs> so the the second part of the question that I I wanted to touch on is, you know, how can we create an orgasmic environment? So right. So so less focusing on the orgasm and how can we create an orgasmic environment? You know, part one of that question was focus on self, right? Develop the kind of self-pleasuring practice that is ritualistic and intentional and, and focus on slowing down and bringing sensation into the body. So that's one piece. How do we create an orgasmic environment with another person? Yeah, that's a, such a great question. I love the intent behind that question. You know, we talk a little bit about safety and One of the things that I'm not sure if I'm speaking personally or sort of professionally when I say this, but there's a a certain level of spaciousness that needs to exist in a safe environment, in a sexually safe environment, which, you know, is another way of sort of saying an orgasmic environment, uh, an environment that's safe for a woman to let go into the state of orgasm. And so, yeah, I mean, I I think there is, I'm just going to try to spit a bunch of words out and hope they coalesce into something meaningful here. (laughs) Got it. We'll, We'll put them all, we'll glue them all together. Okay, good. <laughs> like refrigerator poetry, that those magnets. You know, I, I think that there's, when a woman is reaching like a heightened state of arousal and sort of m- moving in the direction of what will eventually be an orgasm, if she is able to sort of relax into that expansion with no pressure, then that's an environment that will sort of foster that the more that there is like that she's going to have to manage expectations, feelings, conversation, or, you know, imagined or real in the sort of dynamic, the more she's going to struggle to really be able to let go. She has to be free to really just relax into her own body. So what does that tell you? how do you create that, you know, by the way that you show up for a woman, you know, don't make it about you. Yeah. I've had a lot of casual sex where I was. So as you were saying this, I was thinking, oh, this happens in a relationship in which people know each other and they've had these conversations and we know that there's no pressure and we know there's no focus on orgasm. And then I also was reminded of the, of the fact that, I can be like that with a casual person as well, with a one-night stand. I could have a one-night stand where there's no pressure to do anything that the other person doesn't want to do 
or for them to do anything that I want them to do. Uh, there's no expectation that we're doing this so that we have an orgasm. And we are just here to connect one, one naked body with another and, and seeing what can we co-create, right? So the intention isn't let's fuck to have orgasms, but like what, what can you and I do together? Where do our desires meet? Right. Let's say I want all these. It's like the Venn diagram. I've got my circle of the shit I want. You've got your circle of the shit you want. What's in the middle? And can we do? Can we do that? Yeah. Um. I. I. Some of my most powerful, many of my most powerful sexual experiences have been with people that I didn't really know. Mm. And I think you're speaking to that right now in a way. You know, like we have no expectations of each other. We have no investment in each other. We're just here soul to soul, body to body, needing to do this dance and see what happens. And that's something that honestly, it needs to be cultivated more even in a long term relationship. And then a bunch of the work that I do is like, leaving the 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 sort of the business of life outside the bedroom door. Um, and really showing up, you know, whether it's the, the eye gazing to cultivate presence, whether it's the work on ourselves to sort of provide space for both individuals to unravel the the sort of all of those intertwined, you know, threads or tentacles and and to just show up in that purity of of space together that, you know, allows for a thriving sexual connection. Yeah. Hmm. I'm reminded that you can have that with someone that you don't know. And that it might even, if it's the right person, it can be easy to foster that kind of environment because you don't have the story. You don't have the to-do list together and you don't have all of the disappointments and the long-term, all that stuff. So it is, it's possible to create that environment. And like you said, I've also had some very powerful sexual experiences with people I didn't know very, very well. And then it's also extremely possible to have that with your long-term partner. And it's going to require, like you said, to leave a lot of that stuff at the door and to, and to meet in the bedroom or the living room or whatever in a, in a s- intentional way. We're here to explore sexuality together. And you, and you really, I mean, you can't be in your mind and your body at the same time. If you want to fully be in your body, you have to get out of, of your, your brain, get out of your head. Yeah. I have a module on that on my intro to great sex workshop. Yeah. Which is how to get out of your head and into your body. Um, and there's, I have a variety of different strategies. One of them is to name the thing that's in your head. You know, whatever it is, sometimes it's like, oh, the story I'm telling myself is that I'm taking too long to orgasm. Oh, babe, you know, I don't, I'm not even here to give you an orgasm. I'm here to just like eat you out until either my tongue gets tired or you want to do something else. (laughs) I, I, yeah, I love your, I love your ease with which you discuss this stuff. (laughs) It's very refreshing. I'm used to it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what, I don't know, I don't know where it came from, but I don't know. I've got a degree in communication. So I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I suspect I knew how to do it before I got the degree. Yeah. Um, you know, if I just, 
I feel like if you can't talk about sex, you shouldn't be having sex, but that would also mean that a lot of people aren't going to be having sex. Right. I mean, I think that I think that one of the things I love about your work and it is your your ability to have the conversation and help people have the conversation for themselves. You know, like there you teach people how to talk about sex right. and that is one of the the most valuable things that you do. I think it is sort of an obstacle. People people are saying, I, you know, I, I would do this if I knew how. And sometimes you, you do have to give, you know, you, you, you got to write the script. You got to give the fishermen the pole because everybody has this ability. They really do. It's about finding the courage and then actually doing it. And it helps when you have a script for sure. That's right. <laughs> Even if, you know, you try on that script and then you adapt it to your own sort of language. Oh, and I just, I want to be clear. I have all the scripts and it's still awkward for me sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I, I don't want anyone to think that I know how to communicate about everything all the time. It's hard for me. And sometimes I don't even know what's wrong, right? I don't know what the need is. I don't know what the desire is. I'm like everybody else. And it sometimes it comes out sideways. And that's okay because we're humans and humans are awkward. We're messy. We're dealing with other humans that are also messy and we're all just sort of doing the best we can. And the best is, you know, not that great sometimes. Yeah. Oh. <sighs> hmm. We should just, let's just leave people on, on how to create an orgasmic environment. Yeah. I mean, I sort of think, you know, I gave a very sort of esoteric answer. Mm. It's not necessarily practical. Do we want to just circle back and say, you know, dim, you know, dim the lights, light the candles, do the, you know, like all that, like practical, make a space that feels, or is that all just bullshit anyway? It's not. I do. I, I for sure dim the lights. I for sure have dimmers on every single switch in my apartment including the bathroom because who wants bright lights in the middle of lovemaking when you got to go pee. So <laughs> yeah, dim the lights, light the candles. Nobody looks better in than than in candlelight. You know, I I know compact fluorescence just you can have them just don't use them when you're making love. Um enough light so that you can see your partner. Yeah, enough light that you can see your partner, but then the the other thing is that um, it, and it's a, it's a fine line. Like you want to be able to provide it and a sort of environment where a woman doesn't feel like she has to perform it's because it's not about, I mean, if she's performing, then she's not having an orgasm, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I think, a, a, a kind of beautifully dimly lit flattering sort of environment that is comfortable, that shows that you, you know, you, you care to make her comfortable. Again, it, the, the more focus is on her comfort, her pleasure, and her safety, I think, is, is, are the, sort of the best ingredients. And for me, transparency equals safety. So letting the person know wh what your desires are, what your fears are, what your boundaries are. I mean, there's a practice called desires, fears, and boundaries, where you take turns sharing what your desire, your fear, and your boundary is. It's very, very basic. Also, it, it clues you in on what are they available for, what are they scared of, and what are they not available for. And that's just a lot of information that we just don't 
normally have before we have sex with somebody. What if you knew that your partner wanted a erotic massage, wanted you to eat their ass for the first time, which is something that she, she's totally scared of because she doesn't want you to think that she's freaky, but that would actually really turn her on. What if you knew all that ahead of time? We don't normally talk about this. I mean, it's like all the information is available if you choose to talk about it. Literally like a shortcut to your partner's pleasure. The whole manual is there. I mean, of course, they have to know. Right Now we're going back to, <laughs> to know yourself and spend time cultivating the awareness around what feels good, what doesn't feel good. Uh, that's step one really, so that you can then talk about it and you can then share with your partner what it what, what it's going to take for you to like, not only have an orgasm, but to feel good and to feel safe and to feel aroused. <sighs> and to relax into and surrender to another person. Yeah. And ourselves ultimately. And ourselves ultimately. The point of orgasm, the very point of orgasm is an individual experience. It's not, it's not relational. And it's possible to time them. <laughs> <laughs> kind of an advanced move, uh, kind of an advanced move, but it's totally doable. It is totally doable. It's not my favorite thing, to be honest with you, because I like to be fully present when my partner is having an orgasm. That's what I, I say. It's an incredibly beautiful thing. Yes. I, I, was, I always say that. You know, she's like, let's come at the seven. I was like, well, you come, then I'll come or vice versa. Because I want to just like really fully watch. witness. Yeah, I want to watch. Yeah. yeah I want to witness yeah. you for sure. Totally. Okay. We're on the same page. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, last thing. Uh, well, actually, a, f a few more short last things, but Diana Richardson wrote a book called Slow Sex. And in there, she talks about this idea that you are responsible for your own pleasure. That's it. So if you're responsible for your pleasure and your partner's responsible for theirs, then we're all good. We're both responsible for our own pleasure. We're both sovereign beings. We're doing it together. We're still, we're still connecting. We're still healing. We're still going deep. We're still experiencing ecstatic joy, but we're both responsible for our own experience. Yeah, it really drives home the point um, that, you know, I, I often say that when we make love, it's the universe making love to itself through us. So our connection with the the universe is, you know, it's it's also not relational. It's an individual thing. And yet we then come together in this sort of synergy of of our own individual connections. It gets that's the dance. And it can absolutely be a doorway to spirituality for sure that's another conversation my god <laughs> let's do that next let's do that one next time okay <laughs> uh what so two two more questions first where can we find you uh zoecores.com can you just spell Z, that? yeah z-o-e-k-o-r-s as in sam.com instagram same thing Instagram, it's all, all social is Zoe Kors, at Zoe Kors. Yeah. And what does love mean to you? Mm. Boy, what does love mean to me? Um, love is a way of being in the world, a way of showing up and engaging with life, with the people in your life and with life itself, um, rooted in compassion and, and joy. That's awesome. That's a nice one. 
Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure. All right, lovebirds, thank you so much for spending this time with Zoe and me this week. If you want to get a hold of me, do so. Sean at thelovedrive.com, questions, comments, whatever. If you need some coaching, you can go to my website, thelovedrive.com forward slash coaching to learn more and check out the workshops that I host. I have one on great sex, one on modern dating, one on healthy communication, and another one that's running right now on emotional availability. Go to thelovedrive.com forward slash workshops and have a beautiful week.